Morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 12. This morning our text will be picking up halfway through verse 36, but we will begin our reading in verse 20. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. And now I invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words and does not receive my words as a judge. The word that I have spoken, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. There is life, eternal life in the words that have just been read. And it's good and it's right for us, Lord, to just pause for a moment and to humble ourselves before you. I'm overwhelmed by what we deserve, Lord. Wrath and judgment, we were in the darkness. But God, you and your great mercy and in your love have seen fit to open our eyes to see ourselves as we truly are. Sinners in the hands of an angry God who has the right to judge us and condemn us for all eternity to hell. Yet at the very same time, you saw fit to enter into your own creation, to live among us, sinners. And not just to live among us, but to die in our stead that we also might live. And so, Lord, we're humbled. Yet at the very same time, I know that there are some in my hearing who are not humbled before you, who are prideful and arrogant as each of us once were, who are unwilling to take you at your word. We see in Jesus' day that this was the case for the nation of Israel. But Lord, this is the case for every man, woman, and child, that we are unwilling to take you at your word. But we thank you that you have the power and the right and the authority to cause us to be born again that we would willingly choose to look to you and to love you and to submit to your word. I thank you that I'm not God, but you are, and you know exactly where each and every one of us are this morning. 
And so, Lord, it's my prayer that as we open your word and as we consider your word, that you would minister to each and every one of us exactly where we're at. For those who are high, I pray that they would be brought low, that they might be humbled before you. And for those who are low, I pray that you would exalt them, that they would boast in the glorious riches of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, John chapter 12 is the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. From this point forward, the Lord Jesus Christ would no longer preach to the public, but the public would play a very important role in the penalty that he would incur upon himself. In a very short time, Jesus would be taken from this world, yet at the very same time, his life and death would have everlasting ramifications on the world. Before we get into our text, I just want to take a step back this morning. Much of what our passage says this morning has already been said earlier in the Gospel of John. If you've been tracking along with us and hearing the proclamation of the Gospel of John, there's not much that is new in this text. Our text serves as a summary, really, of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you haven't noticed, I want to point out that chapters 1 through 12 cover approximately three years of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. John foregoes the birth narrative. John foregoes any childhood stories about the Lord Jesus. Rather, he gives us a theological introduction, what we call the prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And it's through that prologue that we can rightly interpret and understand what follows the prologue. And after he gives us that theological introduction, he then embarks on a journey taking his readers through the ministry of Jesus Christ in these 12 chapters. Three years and 12 chapters. But friends, we are in for a major shift. Do you realize that the remaining nine chapters of the Gospel of John, John 13 through 21, covers only three days? Only three days. Three years in 12 chapters, but then three days in nine chapters. John slows way, way down to conclude his gospel. And literarily speaking, this gives us as readers the impression that the three days that will be covered in the rest of the gospel of, are of supreme importance. And it is our text this morning, the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry, that also serves as an introduction to the latter half of this book. So we can say that our t- text is, yes, a summary of the Lord Jesus' public ministry, but at the same time, it's also a bridge to John's account of the most important three days in human history. The conclusion of Jesus' public ministry will give way to his private ministry, to the twelve, and then it will lead us to the cross. We will begin that journey next week. 
However, for our purposes this morning, it's important to see what John and Jesus say about the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to the main idea of the sermon this morning, the main idea of the text this morning. What we see in our text this morning is a response, or rather responses, to the Word of God. Responses to the Word of God and the results that follow so that you might, might either be warmed or warned by the Word of God and by the public earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in our passage, we observe the primacy of the Word of God. I want you to know as we work our way through the text that we see the Word of God in multiple forms. We see the written Word of God that is the Old Testament, as John is going to quote from Isaiah. We see the living Word of God, Jesus himself, and we see the spoken Word of God. And we see that certain responses to the Word have certain results. And if I could boil it down, I would simply say this. Ultimately, you're either going to be comforted by the word or you're going to be condemned by the word. You're either going to be conformed by the word or you're going to be crushed by the word. You're either going to be transformed by the word or you're going to be trounced by the word. That's really the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in a nutshell. Believe his words. Believe his work. Believe his person and live. Reject his words. Reject his person. Reject his work. And die. It's my prayer that everyone in my hearing might be warmed and comforted and conformed and transformed by the word of the Lord. We're going to go through this text First, looking at the rejection of the word. Then we're going to look at the reception of the word. And lastly, we're going to look at the retribution by the word. Let's begin with the rejection of the word, picking up at verse 36. And what we're going to have here, halfway through verse 36, is John's commentary. You notice verses 20 through 50 of John 12 is really Jesus speaking. It seems as if it's one speech, if you will. But in the middle of Jesus speaking, John is going to interject himself to give some theological and biblical commentary on what is going on in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this portion, we observe really two perspectives of unbelief. The divine action of unbelief and then the human action of unbelief. And let it be known up front that there is some hard truth in this section. Would the Lord give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. The divine action of unbelief, look with me at verse 36b. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Just Picture yourself there for a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ had just said in verse 35, the light is among you a little while longer. And then he conceals himself or he hides himself from the crowd that he is speaking to. 
It is as if Jesus is saying through action what he had just said through word. There is a warning implicit here. There is a short time until the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross. And he has been ministering and he has been preaching and he has been teaching within the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, John continues and said, though he had done so many signs. So many signs. In the Greek, it's what they call the perfect tense. And all that means is that there is a completed action that has continuing results. So in other words, the signs that Jesus did have a permanence to them. They have a continuation to them. The signs of Jesus should elicit belief in the person who did the signs, both in Jesus' day, but also in our day. Is this not exactly what John writes in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31? He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, the God, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. John is telling you, look, Jesus did a lot of signs, but I have chosen by the Spirit of God to write these ones down so that you would believe. John also writes in chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse of the book, that there are also many other things that Jesus did, or every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You get the sense that Jesus left a lot of evidence during his earthly ministry. The Greek, as a matter of fact, could also be translated though he had done such great signs. It's either so many or such great signs. And so some commentators, they believe that the emphasis is not on the, the quantity of the works, but rather on the quality of the works. And I don't really see so great a distinction between the two. The simple read through the Gospels shows us that, what? Jesus both did a lot of signs, and I can't think of one of his signs that weren't great, qualitatively speaking. So he did both. And we remember that John uses the term signs throughout his gospel to refer to a miraculous work that is done by God through the person of Christ that points beyond the sign itself. That's how John is using the word sign throughout his book. It points beyond the sign itself to the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. But the text continues. They still did not believe. They still did not believe. The immediate referent for they is the crowd to whom Jesus was speaking. And we understand that most of this crowd was comprised of Jews, but that there are also some Gentiles present. In verse 20, we're told that some Greeks are there. That being said, most of the signs that Jesus had performed during his earthly ministry were among his own people or among the Jews, or among the nation of Israel. And remember back in the prologue, John tells us, he, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Because this text is the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry, 
it seems that the best understanding of they, the they who still did not believe, most likely and most specifically refers to the nation of Israel. Although some Jews believed that Jesus was who he says he was, most did not. In other words, there was a national rejection of Jesus as Messiah, a national rejection of Jesus as the Christ by the nation of Israel. And I just want to point out the overwhelming grace of God. He came to his own in the person of Christ. He preached to them, and he performed signs among them, yet they did not believe. It seems that there was an unwillingness to believe. That though he was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy, he didn't meet the expectations of the people of the day, and so they conspired to kill him. It is at this point that John turns the book of Isaiah, turns to the book of Isaiah to give us his commentary. He gives us theological insight, biblical commentary about what is going on in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 38. He says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Before we get into some of the specific details about this passage, I want to point out some obvious points, if indeed we are going to take the plain meaning of the text. First is this, is that God is not surprised by unbelief. God is not surprised by unbelief. He isn't working and in the background wondering to himself, I hope someone believes. No, rather, in his sovereign wisdom, he plans and he predicts and he even purposes unbelief. And this is hard for some of us to swallow. And it's impossible for each and every one of us to fully comprehend. But that is exactly what the text teaches here. We know that God is good. We know that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so therefore we must not conclude that God is the immediate cause of unbelief. As a matter of fact, as we work our way through this text, the text itself doesn't allow us to come to that conclusion. Yet at the very same time, we know that God is sovereign. We know that he determines the beginning from the end. Therefore, we must conclude on the basis of this text and on the basis of many other texts that there is divine action, if you will, in all things that from him and through him and to him are not some things, but are all things. He alone has the prerogative to choose, and he chose some and passes over others. And John has already made it clear in this book, most particularly maybe John 6, that God must draw us. God must draw us so that we can believe. And now we see that unbelief is foretold of in Scripture. 
John is going to quote first Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. And you need to know the book of Isaiah is an amazing book. He is the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. And the book of Isaiah really has two halves. It's a, a book of judgment, but also a book of promise. The first 40 chapters, or 39 chapters rather, is primarily judgment. Chapters 40 through 66 is primarily promise. And so Isaiah warns the nation that judgment is coming upon them as a result of their sin and lack of repentance. Yet at the very same time, Isaiah promises the redemption and restoration of the nation primarily through a person identified in the second half of the book as the servant of the Lord. And so with this quotation, we have two questions that are asked. Look again at verse 38. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That's Isaiah speaking. Who has believed what he has heard from us or or who has believed our report? The answer is that the nation of Israel has heard, yet they have not believed. It goes on, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the servant of the Lord. We'll see that when we turn to Isaiah 53 in a moment. And he has been revealed to Israel, yet they have rejected him. Who is this servant of the Lord? In the book of Isaiah, there are four servant songs. We don't have time to go through all of them, but you can note them down if you want to look into them. They they all speak of what I believe is prophecy of the ministry in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9 are the first three servant songs. 42, 1 through 9. 49, 1 through 6, 54 through 9. And the most famous, which we are well aware of, we say it's Isaiah 53, but it's really Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. And let's turn there just quickly. I believe what John is doing by quoting Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 is he's giving a nod to the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ has come and he has been reporting or speaking the words of God. That he has been revealed, the arm of the Lord has been revealed to Israel, yet they're in unbelief. Isaiah 52, beginning at verse 13. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be on high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of them, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Verse 1 of 53, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's what John quotes in John chapter 12. But we realize in verse 2 that this arm of the Lord is a person. It's the servant of the Lord. And so, so Isaiah continues, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days the will of the Lord shall prosper in his land, in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I would divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Can you think of anyone who fulfills that prophecy? It's amazing, and I don't have time to get into it. I'll let you Google it. Look up and see what Jews, present-day Jews, do with Isaiah 53. See how they handle that text. It's so clear and it's so apparent that this speaks of Jesus after his first coming. And so what do you do with this? The easiest thing to do is to get rid of Isaiah 53 or to say Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus. But many people choose to get rid of Isaiah 53. By quoting Isaiah 53.1, it seems that John is claiming that this prophecy that Isaiah spoke some 700 years before the coming of Christ is being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. He offers us a theological interpretation of the gospel events that are going on, but he also shows us how they match perfectly with what God has always intended. That's what Edward Clink says of this text. What is implied in verse 38 is explicitly stated in verses 39 and 40. Look what it says. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The unbelief of the Jews and the rejection of Jesus, their Messiah, is the fulfillment of Scripture. That's not the only Scripture that speaks of what the Lord is going to do with the nation of Israel, but that is what is spoken of here, that there is, a, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 9 through 11, that there is a hardening on the nation of Israel, but it's only partial. And it will be removed at some point. But the point is this. John says that they could not believe. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. So let's go back to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah chapter 6. 
John is using perhaps the most two famous passages in all of Isaiah. And I want us to turn to Isaiah 6 and see that God commissions Isaiah for a ministry that will have negative results for the nation of Israel, at least from an immediate human perspective. And what John is doing is he's showing us that the same is true of Christ's ministry. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. This is the call of Isaiah. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, or may the whole earth be full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the proper response. Look how Isaiah responds to this vision. And I said... Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Let's pause there for a moment. I want us to see that Isaiah is well aware of the fact of, of what he deserves. He's not concerned about his freedom. He's not concerned about his thoughts. He knows one thing. He has just had a vision of the Lord and he deserves to die. That's humility. That's humility, saints. And unless and until we get to that point, we're going to see less of God's glory. We're going to appreciate salvation less. Because when we read texts that speak of God hardening the hearts of people, sometimes we interpret that, well, that's not fair. Well, how dare God harden someone's heart? There's a few things we have to think about for a moment. Number one is this, Genesis chapter 3. That when Adam and Eve sinned, the nature, the composition of mankind was altered. It was changed such that we now have a sin nature. And hear me now, we're born with hard hearts. But we so prize our freedom over the freedom of God. And we read texts and we say, well, well don't I have the freedom of choice? Well, well, yeah, in a sense. But because you have a sin nature, the only choice you have is to sin. I don't want be left to my own devices. I already have a hard heart and I need someone outside of myself to give me a new heart. So God and God alone has the right to say, hey, you who have a hard heart, I'm gracious to you in that I revealed myself through my word. I'm gracious to you in that I sent my only beloved son in the person of Christ to minister and to be among you. And I have the right and the prerogative and the authority to choose whom I see 
fit to choose than to pass over whom I see fit to pass over. I want God to be free more than I want myself to be free. And when we wrestle and we have thoughts about what does it mean for God to harden a heart, I'll get to that in a moment. I first want us to realize that we have to accept the reality that, Saint, your heart is hard. And God's hardening of a heart isn't so much him causing you to sin, rather he's just giving you over to your own desires. And that's exactly what we see as we continue in Isaiah 6. This is the call of Isaiah, and then look at verse 8. Isaiah continues, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So Isaiah sees God, realizes that he deserves to die. God intervenes on his behalf and cleanses him. He says, your sin is atoned for. And then what happens? Isaiah says, I'll do whatever you want, Lord. That's a pretty good path to follow. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. In other words, God is telling Isaiah that the message that he will preach will not be heard by the nation of Israel for at least two reasons. Number one, Isaiah's preaching is a judgment from God. It's a judicial action. I've been patient with you. I've loved you. I've cared for you. And you were not willing to accept me. Therefore, I'm sending you a judgment. And Isaiah's preaching was a judgment. But also, in some sense, the preaching itself is a cause of their unbelief. Look what it says. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. That's what God is telling Isaiah to do. It's a cause of their unbelief to some extent. Why? Because preaching does one of two things, beloved. Preaching, preaching either hardens the heart or it softens the heart. It's, it's one or the other. You either hear the word of God and you're softened by it, or you hear the word of God and you're hardened to it and by it. And God is completely sovereign over those results. But what does this have to do with the ministry of Jesus? Here John drops a theological bomb, as I like to call them. He says that Isaiah said these things because Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. His is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. He is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, this text, John chapter 12, verse 41, says that Christ is Yahweh. It's one of the few places in Scripture where it's so clear there's nothing to do, there's no way to get out of it. This is a place where the New Testament says Christ is Yahweh. And we remember that Christ is the glory of God. It says he saw his glory. We've already been told that Christ is the glory of God. Remember in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As a matter of fact, in verse 18, John tells us that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who has explained the Father to us, who has exegeted or expounded the Father. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him, the Father, known. So we understand that Christ is the glory of God made manifest. We see that in the prologue, and we see that here in John 12 as well. But Christ is also the only mediator between God and man. Christ is also the only mediator between God and man such that when God's glory is made manifest, yes, even in the Old Testament, it seems to be through the agency of God the Son, as we see here in Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees the Lord, and John tells us that Isaiah saw the second person of the triune God in that vision. Thus, the application of Isaiah 6 This quotation in John 12 to Jesus' ministry is twofold. First is this. Israel's response to the ministry of Jesus is the judgment from God on the nation of Israel for her unbelief and her rebellion. But second, Israel's response to the ministry of Jesus is ordained, predicted, and orchestrated by God such that we can say there is a divine action of unbelief. In other words... They could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he, Yahweh, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And it seems that this hardening is a judicial act of God in response to the sin and rebellion of his people. I wish I had more time to think out loud with you, but I would tell you to go read the end of the book of Acts. I would tell you to read Romans chapter 9 through 11, that through the hardening of Israel, the gospel is extended to all the nations. And that there is a day coming, I believe, in which God will fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. He will save his people. But it works in God's sovereign plan. And if we get a big picture of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we're actually in awe of the wisdom of God and how he works in and through the person of Christ. In the same breath that I say that there there is a divine action to unbelief, I also say that there is a human action of unbelief. Get this, God's sovereignty, yes, even God's sovereignty and unbelief is never, ever, ever any place in the Bible expressed in such a way to diminish human responsibility. This is why I said earlier, each and every one of us have an impossibility to fully grasp what's being stated sometimes in Scripture. I like what John Piper said about such things. Sometimes you explain a text And other times you simply proclaim a text because this is what the word of God says and it is our authority and we are to submit to it. But there is a human action of unbelief. Look at chapter chapter 12, verse 42. It says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so I've entitled this section, The Human Action of Unbelief, but the first thing that we read is that, what, many of the authorities believed in him. And so you should be asking yourself, Kenny, have you misread the text? Do you understand what's going on here? And I would say, well, it's true that there is a general belief in Jesus by some of the authorities that he may be the Messiah, We saw earlier in this very chapter that the the city of Jerusalem was abuzz 
when Jesus had arrived there. They're calling out for him. They're excited. They want him to rule and reign from Jerusalem. However, they don't understand the twofold coming of Christ. But we also must remember that John has a rather complex theology of belief. This is something that if we're going to understand John's theology, if we're going to understand the gospel of John, we have to think very carefully about what he means by belief. And so we've seen as early as chapter 2 that people believe for the wrong reasons. That people believe Christ, but Christ knows what's in man and he doesn't entrust himself to them. We also saw people believe for a little while until what? Until the preaching gets too hard. We saw that in John chapter 6. They can't accept the hard teaching. We also saw that people believe, but their belief is not expressed in good deeds. That They say they believe, but they're not going to show that they actually believe by a changed life. We saw that in John chapter 8. And now people are said to believe, however, they are unwilling to confess it. And so the question is, is this true belief that's a little bit timid, or is it not true belief? In other words, is it, yeah, we believe some things about Jesus, but we don't take him at his word completely and totally. I'll let you wrestle with that. But my, my thought is it's not true belief. That people can say, yeah, Jesus does some wonderful things. Yeah, Jesus might be the Messiah. However, we're not willing to say that. Well, why aren't they willing to say it? For two reasons, the fear of man and the glory from man. And this is ultimately what makes me conclude that this is not genuine belief. It's a superficial belief, if you will. It says that they were unwilling to confess it. They did not confess it. What, what, when we say the word confession, that's one of those Christian words, right? But what does confession mean? Confession literally means saying the same thing. And so when we talk about confessing, we're saying I'm going to say the same thing that God has said. So if I confess my sin, I say the same thing that God says about sin. If I confess who the Lord Jesus Christ is, I don't come with my own picture, my own ideas. I say, I confess the same thing that God has said about Jesus Christ. But they're unwilling to say the same thing that Jesus himself has said. Why? Because they fear being thrown out of the synagogue. Life revolved around the synagogue, and they were unwilling to depart. And so we pause, and we fast forward 2,000 years, and we have to ask ourselves a very similar question. What does your life revolve around? What comforts are you unwilling to give up to say the same thing that God says about the Christ? Do you simply believe on Sunday? You know the easiest place for me to preach? Right here. You know the hardest place for me to preach? Any place other than right here in my home. (laughs) Am I willing to say what God says about Christ when it's not popular, when it will cost me some comforts? These people believe in him, but they're not willing to confess it. Perhaps it's not true belief. But we're also told they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They like the honor, the praise, the recognition, the approval of men more than they like the honor, the praise, the recognition, and approval that comes from God. And there's what 
we call a double entendre here. That Yes, it's talking about praise and recognition, but you immediately think when you read in verse 43, then the glory that comes from God, you immediately think what was just said in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And so they like the praise of men, but also they like the praise of men more than perhaps Christ himself. Therefore, I'm unwilling to confess it. This is the human action of unbelief. As I said earlier, our hearts are already hard. And left to ourselves, we will never, we will never, we can never choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Our motives, our whole person has been corrupted by sin. The first part of our passage is John's commentary, and it speaks of the rejection of the word of God. Yes, there's both a divine action and a human action, and this brings us to the reception of the word in verses 44 through 46. And we're going to see Jesus re-enter here. The final words of Jesus during his public ministry in the Gospel of John are right here in verses 44 through 50. We're not exactly sure when or where Jesus said these words. Verse 36b says that Jesus had departed, but it is possible that Jesus reappeared to proclaim these final words. Whatever the case is, John puts it here as a conclusion, the concluding words, the summary statement from Jesus himself And it reads this, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. In other words, Jesus is speaking about his person here. He he cried out, he shouted, he exclaimed, The last statements of his public ministry are a proclamation of truth concerning his nature and his purpose and his authority. And John here calls his his readers to believe. Jesus says, whoever believes me, believes in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. We already remember in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so right in the very first, book, very first verse of the Gospel of John, we have a distinction in person that there is one who is with God, the Word was with God, but at the very same time, the Word is God. Distinction in personhood, yet the same in nature. This text shows us that Jesus Christ is the true representative of the Father. Understand this and proclaim this until your dying days. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God. And to believe in God is to believe in Jesus. Or I could put it another way. To believe in the Son is to believe in the Father. And to believe in the Father is to believe in the Son. John chapter 5 verse 23 says that authority, the authority to judge has been given to Jesus. Why? So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Any religion that does not honor the Son just as they honor the Father, honors the Father not at all. Jehovah's Witness, Muslims, you name it, any religion that doesn't honor the Lord Jesus Christ just as they honor the Father, they do not honor the Father at all. 
the reception of the living word of God really entails believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in this world through the incarnation. We weren't there. But praise God that in his providence and in his provision, he has accurately preserved the personal work of Christ in his written word. And so we could say this, Jesus is the divine word who was in the beginning with God and who is God. Jesus is the divine word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the divine word who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is the divine word who is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the divine word who, who in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the divine word who in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And lastly, Jesus is the divine word who is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. This is the person of Christ. Receive him. Receive him as he says he is, or you don't receive him at all. But John also portrays the purpose of Christ. Look at verse 46. Jesus, John records Jesus' words, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This one small, simple verse contains so much truth. The overall thrust is that what? Christ's purpose in coming was to save. But to save from what is the question? And this verse tells us that the condition of the world was darkness. It was sin. That there was a, a curse. And that each and every one of us have incurred this sinful nature. This text also tells us the character of Christ, that, that Christ is the light. We remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or cannot grasp it or does not comprehend it. We're told the location of Christ shining, that he truly is in the world. The world is covered in darkness. Christ comes and he shines light into the darkness, which is the world. We're told the purpose of his coming to redeem people, people like you and I, from darkness. And lastly, we're told the condition of his coming. Whoever believes in me. These are warm, warm words from the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to be one last invitation at the end of Jesus' ministry before he shuts down that public ministry and focuses on his immediate disciples, beginning in verse 13. But Jesus also offers a strong warning. Let's look at the retribution by the word in verses 47 through 50. We see that the words of Jesus in this section serve as the final judge for those who reject him. And we also see that the word of Jesus are the final judge on the last day. The, for he speaks the very words of the Father. Verse 47 says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. First notice this. Hearing is not enough. Hearing the word of God is not enough. It's hearing and keeping. This is exactly what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. 
It's the wise man who hears and keeps. It's the foolish man who hears but doesn't keep. The wise man builds his house on the rock, and when the eschatological judgment of God comes, his house stands because he's founded upon Christ. And it's the man who doesn't build, the foolish man, the one who builds his, his house on the sand that is destroyed. There's a hearing and a keeping. But notice what Jesus says. It's somewhat shocking. He says, I do not judge him. I do not judge him, he says. This is in the present tense. Some translations say, I am not judging him. So as Jesus is there, as he's preaching and as he's teaching, Jesus is not there to judge, at least not yet. However, we see that rejecting the words of Jesus does indeed incur judgment. Notice the very next verse in verse 48. Jesus changes from the present tense to the future tense. The one who rejects me presently and does not receive my words presently has a judge. The word that I have spoken, future tense, will judge him on the last day. Maybe you could boil it down like this. Our present reaction to the word of the Lord has eternal ramifications. If we receive the word of the Lord now, eternal life is ours. But if we reject the word of the Lord, there's a sense in which we are condemned already, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, 16. But certainly, if there is no repentance, the words that Jesus spoke, the very words that we are reading now, will be our judge on the last day. Jesus will judge. And rejecting Jesus' words acquires judgment. But notice what Jesus does next. He's not saying these things on his own authority. He closes by speaking of the authority from which he speaks. And we see the word as the final authority. Verses 49 and 50. For I have spoken not on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, I'm sorry, has, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. In other words, everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did was a direct command from his heavenly Father. He says elsewhere in the Gospel of John, I only do what I see the Father doing. And he closes by saying this, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Everything, everything that Jesus said and did in his earthly ministry is not merely the word of a man, but it is the very word of God. One commentator put it this way, to pit Jesus against God is to misunderstand Jesus and to misunderstand God. And notice the last thing offers great grace. That this commandment that the Father has given itself is eternal life. Therefore, we would be wise to heed and to hear. In our text, we've seen different responses to the word of God and the results that follow. 
Are you warmed? Or are you warned? I just want to calmly and with fullness of heart say this. I know that there are people in my hearing, either here or out back or online, who are religious people, who will check the boxes, who will read their Bibles. But beloved, true belief entails hearing and keeping. And each and every one of us should be warned when we come across texts like this. It's an opportunity to test ourselves to see if we're truly living in the way that the Lord Jesus calls us to live. No, we're not perfect, but the Spirit enables us and helps us and empowers us to grow slowly but surely, such that when we view our lives and we are involved with one another's lives and we say, hey, hey, what's going on in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? We should be able to say, in the context of community, that by the grace of God you are growing and being conformed into the likeness of Christ. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. It might look different in our lives, but there should be growth. And if there is no growth, then we have to ask ourselves, am I truly a child of God? And if you don't know, that's okay. But don't be quiet about it. Talk about it. Share your life with others. There's no place in Scripture that promises us promises us that we'll be assured for every aspect of our walk with Christ. We can be assured, but it's not a promise. And so if we're not assured, it's good and right for us to be warned. And there's some of you, I'm afraid, who need to hear that there's no other viable option. There's no other viable option. That Jesus Christ himself is life. And all other ends our destruction. He is both the purpose and the end of life. To know Christ is to know God. And if you know Christ, then remember what Jesus says here. Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I'm speaking to you, saint. Has some aspect of their life that is dark, that you haven't shared, that you're afraid to talk about, that you put on a happy face at church, no one knows other than God. As a matter of fact, you might even be too fearful to talk to God about it. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, does not need to remain in darkness. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot, will not, has not, does not overcome it. Lord, bless this precious church. We are yours, and you are ours, all by grace and for your glory. So Lord, I do truly pray that your spirit would warm the hearts of your children, that we would be encouraged that we might not remain in the darkness, 
and for those of us who are not your children, I pray that even now, O oh God, we would be warned by your word and that by your grace, through your spirit, we would be children, become children today. All the glory is yours forever and ever and ever. Amen. If you have any prayer needs whatsoever, I invite you to come forward and to pray with the elders. They'll be up front.